So our call together tonight is a song by the Indigo Girls, a song called Hammer and a Nail. And I've heard them talk about the fact that they wrote this for Habitat for Humanity. I think they knew Jimmy Carter and... Um, so this song was kind of a devotion, pontification on uh, this idea of kind of getting your hands dirty and jumping in on a project. And we're going to talk about vocation tonight as part of our Ordinary Time series. So if you haven't heard this one, uh, the chorus is pretty easy to pick up, and so we'll do it several times. Clearing webs from a hovel Blistered hand on the handle of a shovel Been digging too deep, always do See my face on the surface I look a lot like Narcissus A dark abyss of an emptiness Standing on the edge of a drowning blue I look behind my ears for the green even my sweat smells clean Glare off the white hurts my eyes Gotta get out of bed, get a hammer and a nail Learn how to use my hands Not just my head, I think myself into jail Now I know a refuge never grows From a chin on a hand and a thoughtful pose Gotta tend the earth if you wanna grow Sit around for 50 years, then collect a pension Started seeing the road to hell And just where it starts Life is more than a vision The sweetest part is acting after making a decision Started seeing the whole as the sum of its parts Look behind my ears for the green even my sweat smells clean Glare off the white hurts my eyes I gotta get out of bed and get a hammer and a nail Learn how to use my hands Not just my head, I think myself in a jail Now I know a refuge never grows From a chin and a hand and a thoughtful pose Gotta tend the earth if you wanna roll Life is part of the global life I found myself becoming more immobile But I think a little girl in the world Can't do anything A destination, my community A street person, my responsibility If I have a care in the world I have a gift to bring I Look behind my ears for the green even my sweat smells clean Glare off the white hurts my eyes I gotta get out of bed and get a hammer and a nail Learn how to use my hands Not just my head, I think myself in a jail Now I know a refuge never grows From a chin on a hand and a thoughtful pose Gotta tend the earth if you wanna roll 
Get out of bed and get a hammer and a nail Learn how to use my hands I just my head, I think myself in the jail Now I know a refuge never grows From a chin and a hand and a thoughtful pose Now it's in the earth if you want to Hey everybody, I'm Tim. It's good to see you this evening at Emmaus Way. Um, one of the things we say about Emmaus Way is that this is a community of, of friends and uh, new friends. And one of the things that we try to do each week is gather around uh, the table and gather around the text and hear each other's voices uh, with the idea that the, the, and the knowledge that God's redemptive work is happening in this place, in this community, in the broader community. And we recognize that to be a part of that work, we need to hear each other's stories. We need to hear each other's voices, and so we gather each week to do that. And at the table each week, we get the opportunity to embody the kingdom that is both coming and has come. So it's a, it's a pleasure to see you guys. Hey, it was great last uh, Sunday evening to Susan to be on your front porch and throughout your house, uh, our, kind of our traditional Labor Day weekend potluck. And so thanks to everybody who hung out or cooked, cooked food for that. And a couple quick things tonight. Philip and Mackenzie very, very kindly um, are making a kind of a film for Mayus Way for us to, to put on our website, something that we would have wanted to, to do for a long time. They do this professionally and actually have a new, you guys have a new film. What, what was that you've posted? It's the one, what was this? It's the seminary in... If you haven't seen that, check that out. Mimi watched that the other day. It's, it's, they, their work is fantastic. So just want you to know, we're going to be recording visuals, uh, but, uh, but, but not audio tonight. That will be layered over with music and a whole range of things. So your comments aren't being recorded, but there will be some, some camera work going on tonight with that. So that's what's up. Also, uh, you'll hear from him in just a minute or two, but a welcome to Stephen Nicholson, who is, uh, how long have you been back from South Africa now? We can so a while uh, and and Florida first and kind of moving, kind of moving north. Stephen, a few of you guys would know. Stephen was part of the original. Denise, how many was the original? Like eight of us, seven of us that were the kind of the the founding group of uh, Emmaus Way, and he was uh, one of our pastors for a year before uh, before he and his wife um, uh, set out to um, at that point. Um, um, I forget the name of the word, it's Serve, Serve Life, Serve Life uh, with Serve Life in uh, South Africa. So I'm going to talk to him a little bit tonight. You'll get to hear some of their work. And uh, if you know Stephen, please uh, say hello tonight. But if you, if you don't, introduce yourself. We're delighted to have him with us. No family uh, tonight, unfortunately. But, uh, they laughed, actually, when I said we were, I was taking a road trip. So. Uh, that's right. You've, you, you're, you're a bigger family than you once were. Yeah, absolutely. So we're glad to have you with us. Hey, just a few other quick things. One of the things we're really um, 
committed to as a community is uh, making sure that you're able to connect with us in a way that you want to connect with us. One of the things that a lot of folks do here, is we have a variety of home groups. We have a pub group on Thursday nights that's a, kind of an open conversation about life and philosophy, theology. I think I saw Dave Klein around here somewhere. He's behind you. He's behind me. Dave's probably a good person to ask if you're interested in pub group. If you're interested in one of, in one of our home groups, and one of the things we do every fall is kind of make room in those groups so that people can join in. And Elizabeth Eford is, is right over here. You can ask her about those or, or me or whatever. So if you want to connect in kind of a smaller way, in a Mayus way, we want to make sure that we help you do that. One other thing that's upcoming is that um, we do a quarterly community conversation that we call Ecclesia, and that is in two Sundays, right, Jenny, on the 25th. Um, the scoop for that evening is um, we compress kind of the organized worship time from five to six. We order pizza. If you can throw in a few bucks to the plate for pizza, great. If you can't, don't worry about it. Um, we order pizza. Pizza arrives between 6 and 6.15. We eat together. Uh, we meet from 6.15 to 7.15. So actually, having eaten, you'll probably be home earlier than you normally would. Uh, but it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to take about 20 to 25 minutes and talk about things that are happening in our community, some of the details that you don't get and we don't bother to put in print. But then... Also, it's a time to dialogue about future and dreams. Some of the best things that we've done in Emmaus Way have come from these conversations. Now, I won't say always instantly from these conversations, but some of the best things that we've done as a community have come just from those suggestions. So if, you, if this is your community or if you're interested in kind of knowing more about us, please uh, plan on hanging out till uh, 7.15 next, uh, next Sunday night. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And... Um... As I mentioned, we're going to talk about um, vocation tonight as part of our Ordinary Time series. And um, vocation, not just uh, as we oftentimes hear it as related to job, but vocation related to the whole of our lives and what we do with all of our life. And um, so as I mentioned, uh, with Ordinary Time, if you take a look at our liturgical calendar, which is that circular uh, thing on the back, that piece of art over there that uh, Carol Baker so graciously painted for us um, a couple years ago, and... Uh, the big green section on the bottom uh, left side, that like third of it that's green is ordinary time. And you can see we're moving up around the circle clockwise towards um, Advent, which is going to be the purple. But this is the longest season of the church. And so um, since it's uh, long, uh, a lot of people think, well, it, it doesn't have any real holidays in it. And so that's part of why we've been doing this series is to give people a sense of all that really goes on in ordinary time. But that's also the theme of this uh, song. That's our song of preparation uh, called Ordinary Time. Um, kind of that, that thing when you can feel stuck and sort of asking yourself, um, is there anything really going on? And uh, I think for, for all of us, there really is. So um, feel free to listen or join in, sing along. I've had a real hard time making sense of it all. Know what I want, it's not like before. I'm still here, beating at the door. Don't think it's too much to ask to have some things go my way. I'm sick of being ignored, I could do so much more. I could use a break. But I don't want one day to just bleed into the next. I want to feel my heart beat. I want to be extraordinary, ordinary time. 
wanna get any younger The days they just fly by I'm not getting any stronger And I wouldn't call me wise They always told me I had potential they couldn't wait to see There's a voice in my head like a noose round my neck Telling me you haven't done it yet But I'll take the grace, the grace given me Yeah, I think I'll learn to embrace the ordinary, ordinary time Oh, creek flows, many roads away Tonight we're going to do kind of a more upbeat Celtic version. Um, uh, my life flows on an endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the real though far off hymn that hails a new creation. This song is really uh, about um, the part of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The part where we enter into the kind of work of God's work um, here building this kingdom that will be on earth one day. And so uh, anyway, hear that in this song. And uh, it's really a song of of joy and hope. My life flows on in an endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the that hails a new creation through all the tumult and the strife I hear its music ringing it sounds an echo in 
second here on the stool. The, uh, so Stephen's vantage point from Emmaus Way is a little different now. Any, any, uh, you, you were with us for a year back in the, uh, the loft above Francesca. Is anybody, I mean, it's, I don't even, I don't even know if, if the, that's still up there. Is it still up there? And there's a few people here from that era. And uh, Stephen was a church planner, uh, really working with Southern Baptists, I think, at the time. Yeah, uh, no, that's where the money came from. Yeah, it's not on tape. Uh, except for that microphone right there. So, so you were working with the Southern Baptist. You were church planning, and and you we heard about you because uh, uh, you had these really clever ads in the Independent that, that sounded fantastic. And, you know, most times when I read an ad, I'm like, I never want to meet the person who wrote that ad. But this was the opposite. And so um, we kind of called you and said we're kind of thinking about doing this. We didn't have a name at the time, but doing this thing, I think, in, in the same area as you. And it was one of those fun opportunities to, to really collaborate rather than kind of do something different. And so you were with us for a year. It was unbelievably invaluable to have uh, a partner. This was before Wade came in and, uh, you know, uh, there was just a few of us kind of getting Emmaus Wade going. So you saw the very first year, and but your wife Amy was teaching at E.K. Poe. And that reminded me, I know it was like, was it, what grade was she teaching? Um, she taught like second and third grade special ed. Yeah, yeah. So she was she was teaching there, and so it was just a, a great friendship, great partnership. Um, and we're talking tonight about vocation, and I, and one of the things I thought that might be some questions to ask you is because uh, one of the things that we've been kind of dealing with in this whole ordinary time and wait I, I love, that's one of my favorite basic songs of all time because it the theology is so nice that we it's what we said several weeks ago that we we look so many times for God in the extraordinary and we miss the the, the mundane daily practices that link us into God's kingdom and God's people um, now Stephen you did something that some would say was fairly extraordinary you you and Amy uh, took off for um, for South Africa about seven years ago, six or seven years ago. You've been there, and, and that was a major vocational change for for you. Uh, you've also had a second vocational change. You guys have adopted uh, two kids. Tell me the names of your kids. Uh, the oldest one is the three-year-old named Fusi, and uh, his name is Fusumzi, which is a South African name, and uh, our two-year-old is Micah. So, yeah. Fusi. Fusi and Micah. Three and two. Yeah, so we have the opposite reaction. When we were in South Africa, people said, "Mika, Mika, what?" what is <laughs> and like, oh, what a beautiful name! And exactly. then we come to America, Mika, that's great. Exactly. So why don't you launch in a little bit? And one of the things we want to do tonight is afterwards, when we're cleaning up and kind of doing the whole deal, I'd love for you to ask Stephen some real specific questions about what they're doing. Your your work has morphed quite a bit over the the, the seven years that you've you've been there, but. Um, uh, would you reflect a little bit about vocation and, and what, what have you learned from, uh, you know, not probably doing dramatically different things but far away in a different culture uh, than you were doing here and, and also this whole change of, of parenting for you guys? Um, uh, first of all, it's great to be back and see a few familiar faces. So that's, um, that's always fun. The, um, <clears throat> yeah, I was excited actually to hear that we're talking about ordinary time and, and vocation. And I was, as I was considering that, um, and, and you asked that question, okay, what, it was this extraordinary change and this huge event, you know, to, to pack up and move to South Africa. And um, to be honest, I think that we didn't really see it that way. 
Um, we, we didn't really see this as something extraordinary, but actually something rather ordinary. Um, and, and in that ordinary time, and, and I would explain it really by saying this, that we had spent um, probably uh, more than a year um, during the time that we were here in Durham, and um, the best way that I can explain it is that God began to turn our attention towards, uh, towards Southern Africa, um, and specifically around um, issues related to HIV and AIDS and, and poverty. Um, and we just began to learn more and more and more about, um, about that, um, those issues and how they were affecting people. And, um, and, and our decision to move was actually quite ordinary um, in the sense that after this long process of just learning and discovering and, and exploring issues that were new to us, um, we realized that it was something that we could no longer ignore. We could no longer ignore those realities and pretend like our life could continue um, in the same way that it had before. And we didn't really know what that meant. And we were involved in this you know, church planting and, um, and starting, with, with, uh, starting up the Emmaus Way. And, um, and we learned a lot of um, valuable things from other churches that had partnerships with churches in, in different parts of the world. And we thought, that'll, that'll, be, that'll be great. We'll do that. Um, and one night we were sitting on the couch, uh, you know, here watching TV, and, um, and I asked my wife, I, I said, hey, do you want to move to South Africa? And she just looked at me and said, okay. And um, I was really kind of taken back by that. And I asked her, I said, so did you mean that when you said, okay? And she just looked right back at me and said, well, did you mean it when you asked? And I said, I, I guess so. And she said, well, I guess so too. And we said, okay, well, let's move to South Africa. And then the show came back on and we just kept watching it. And that was it. We had decided. Like, that was it. We just dropped it. We're like, okay, well, that's done. Let's, this is like Everybody Loves Raymond or something was on. And we're like, it's, it's really funny. I don't want to miss that. Let's not discuss things that aren't important now. Uh, Raymond's back on. And so... It, it was, in that sense, like very ordinary, because I think we realized um, something that was not new, but it was new to us, was this idea that, that God's kingdom is, um, is growing out, is pushing, is expanding its boundaries, and, and God's dream for the world is very clear. And oftentimes, I think we get caught up maybe in those other points, in, in, in ordinary time. I'm sorry, I just keep going back to that. But going, I'm waiting for something special to happen. I'm waiting for, for you know, to be called. I'm waiting for a vision. I'm, I'm waiting for you know, a bolt of lightning from the sky to say, this is the thing you must do. And we realized very clearly, well, these things are already obvious. God's dream is clear. Um, you know, God's hatred of injustice um, and, and God's passion for, uh, for people is, is clear and it's obvious and you don't need a bolt of lightning. You don't need a call. You don't need a special event or um, you know, for God to say, this is what you must do. He's, he's told us already. And, and so in that sense, it, it wasn't really a change of vocation for us. It was just continuing to live a life in pursuit of God's kingdom just in a different place um, and maybe doing a few different things. But, um, but I think at the core, it, it is the same. Um, parenthood is, 
That's a whole different thing. When when we left, yeah, Phil's laughing. Um, the um, we um, I still haven't figured that out. I have nothing important to say on that topic whatsoever. My kids are three and two, and they're insane. And so I have really nothing of value to add. I don't think to that conversation. Um, but I think that what what being a parent has taught us um, is, is really you start to see the world differently. You start to see the world through your, your children's eyes. And especially that our children are adopted and, um, and, and they're South African and they don't look like us. Um, it's very obvious, you know, if you see us together. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that we begin to, we've, we've begun to, to see things more clearly that we haven't seen before, especially around um, kind of systemic injustice and and racism and oppression um, and we began to we began to think you know what what will it mean for for my child to you know to go to school what will his classmates look like and what will who will his role models be um, and is that important and um, and so we've just begun I think it's expanded our um, uh, it's expanded our view I think of the world and and our, our concept of what's important. Yeah. Yeah. One more question. Um, when, you, when you started uh, with Serve Life, which uh, was kind of your first couple, two, three years there, you were doing a lot of networking. I think that was a, and maybe that was a great way to be in a different location because you got to travel. Uh, in some ways, South Africa was almost a base. You were traveling really almost uh, half the continent at that point. Uh, describe one thing that you're doing now that 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 uh, challenges you. It, cha- it challenges your even maybe perception of who you are trying to to serve God in a different place. I, there's a lot going on, but give us give us one give us a snippet. I think maybe the, the, the question of who challenges who I am and uh, maybe vocationally and, and, and what my life is about. Um, yeah, traveling around as, as, a, as a white guy, as, as an American guy um, in, in South Africa and in Southern Africa is, um, is an experience with a lot of different reactions. But a, a lot of the reactions some of the time is, is, to, is to build you up. Um, as while well, you're really doing something great and you've made a big sacrifice and you're so kind and generous or, or whatever. And um, I think for me, the thing that's really challenged all that and, and, and has taught me how completely and utterly hopeless I am um, is, is one of the churches that we work with in, in Zimbabwe. Um, and, you know, Zimbabwe has had the, probably the world's largest economic collapse in history. Um, they, they had inflation rates that were, um, it was like 68 digits long annual inflation. I, I don't even know what those numbers mean. Um, somebody here is probably a mathematician, but I'm not. And so I don't even know. I mean, it was like a very long, I can't even pronounce the, the number. But it, it was 68 digits of annual inflation, um, 90% unemployment. And there was a point at which there was absolutely no food at all to be bought in a shop. So even if you had a job and had money, if you went to the grocery store, there might be five items for sale in the, in the whole grocery store. And in the midst of that, we worked with um, a, a fantastic couple, John and Orpa Chinyoa, in, in a little town called Marandera, Zimbabwe. And 
people are leaving, people are fleeing the country, you know, people are kind of just abandoning all hope. And they were leaders of a church and, and that was responsible for, uh, for a home that had been built many, many years ago. And they kind of inherited um, this home for children who had been orphaned or abandoned. Um, and everybody else left around them. And they stuck it out. And this little church um, is probably, okay, I'd say it was probably about the same number of people as, as Emmaus Way here. And, and they had four people who were employed in their church. And they were solely responsible for looking after, when I met them, 64 kids. And by the time that that kind of crisis had finished, they were up to 100 children. They just kept pouring in and pouring in, and, and the police and the doctors at the hospital would just bring kids. And, and they stuck it out, and they, they sacrificed, and they went without food so the kids could eat. I mean, it's an amazing story. And I think the thing that really struck me was, you know, I asked him, just kind of point blank in this moment of frustration one day, I was like, why are you still here? Because you could go to South Africa, you could, you know, you could leave, you could do better for yourself, you could do better for your family. And, and he just told me, he said, you know what, God gave me these children to look after. And, well, I got to do that. And there was just never any question in his mind that he would be there giving up food for his family or, or whatever he had to do in order to do the thing which God had placed in front of him. And, you know, and for me, that, that really challenged me and made me consider, like, all right, what did I do? I left Durham to go live in Cape Town. I don't know how many of you have been in Cape Town. You've probably been to Cape Town, yeah. But, I mean, Cape Town's like the most beautiful city in the world. I mean, honestly, I live a block from the beach. Come on, you know? Like, oh, and I'm Mr. Generous Sacrifice. I'm so... Yeah, I'm nothing. And, and that really, really challenged me and said, what, what would I do for the sake of, of God's kingdom? Would I really give up anything? Would I really, you know, would I really sacrifice? And, you know, we talk about sacrifice and we, um, I, I honestly don't think that we know what that means. Um, I, I mean, I won't speak for anybody else, but I honestly don't think I know what that means. And when I saw sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom in, in John and Orpa Chinoa, I think that, that is what challenged me in who I am. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. That's a, that's a good sense of the, kind of the tensions of your life. It's actually a great dialogue starter for us in terms of what are we doing and why are we doing it? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, Stephen's going to hang out tonight afterwards and I'd love to, to meet new folks from Emmaus Way as well as old friends and Thanks for, for adding us as a part of your your northward journey. You're headed to D.C. next? And uh, Roanoke, Baltimore, D.C., and Delaware. Fantastic. I don't even know where Delaware is, so if anybody knows. It's pretty small. You can, like, you slow down as you get near there. So, But uh, thank you for coming and being with us. And it's our tradition, kind of before our dialogue, I want to give you a second to stand up, offer each other the peace of Christ, uh, introduce yourself if you're around somebody you don't know, and I'll give us a shout back in about 90 seconds, and we'll jump back into the dialogue. Jonah tonight, uh, another guy who journeyed far and wasn't quite sure what to do with it. So I want to begin um, tonight with a question. Um, and it relates to specifically job, vocation, what you do, 
how you conceive of your life. And, 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 and you know, one of the use, you know, I'm using the word vocation in a sense, not necessarily of just job or career, uh, because the way you organize your life in a sense of purpose might be that or it might be more. I know for some of you, when, when I say vocation, um, you're thinking of things more than just what you do to earn a paycheck, but, but our vocations are significant as well. So the question is this, how do you conceive of your own job or vocation in terms of spiritual practice, if you do? And I, and I realize that this is a whole range of answers. Some of you might say, you know, I specifically chose to do what I do because I'm truly committed to this and I think it, it links my efforts and work into God's kingdom in a significant way. Some of you might say, um, my sense of faith is constantly at war with my vocation, that, that those things are always in each other's face and in each other's grill. But for a few of you, tell me how you think of your vocation and do you think of it as spiritual practice? If so, how uh, or, or otherwise? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, Chelsea. Um, well, I'm currently without job because I stay at home with my kids, but I realize that actually is a job, and I think that's a struggle for me. Like, I was a teacher, I would say, I'm a teacher. People would be like, oh, that's so great, you know, wow, how wonderful. And now that I don't do that anymore and I care for children, my own and others, um, it feels less like it fits in the same list because it's just normal, but in as much as that almost makes me not count it as a vocation. And so I've struggled a lot with having to answer that question on forms, like, what is your vocation? <laughs> what do you write down when you... Uh, Self-employed. When you... <laughs> Self-employed. <laughs> it's a struggle, but I think, you know, I, for me, I kind of, for this season of my life, I've made peace with the fact that my job is actually um, raising my children, and that is a very spiritual thing involves spiritual formation. It involves caring for my husband and caring for their physical needs and helping out, you know, people who need to go to another job so that they have a safe place to bring their kids. And I think that um, because it's not, you know, I don't get a tax return that says this is what I do, it's something that I'll constantly sort of struggle with. Chelsea, the next time you have to fill out a form, I'd like for you to bring it to me because I'm going to fill it out for you. I'm going to add at least one other job in that in terms of the amount of time you spend making Emmaus Way run uh, for the and, and for a fairly overpaid salary that we give you. I mean, what's, how does zero factor into uh, eight times? You know, yeah. Exactly. No 68 digits happening there. And, uh, but, but, but again, you raise a couple of issues here is that not only do we try to think through um, vocation from a meaning sense, a spiritual sense, but there's a whole overlay of how our culture thinks about our vocations. And, and in some ways, uh, sometimes we might affirm something as unbelievable and, and, and it, it maybe not be that hard. Uh, I mean, we just we look at the salaries of athletes in our culture and we understand that we have kind of a crazy system anyway of affirming what is of value. So that, that's, that's great because I think we do struggle with the, the, the value of what we do and we have to in some ways struggle with it over time. Like this is what I'm doing now. A couple other people, how do you think about your vocation and, and spiritual practice? Tim? 
say that um, I can see what my vocation is. I kind of take the idea of salt and light very seriously. That 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 what I, what I do is I am I, I am where I am at, whether that's in my uh, my work where I earn money, or whether that's in, even here, or whether that's in my neighborhood, as you know, someone who can only influence the people in my immediate sphere of influence, and and that's kind of the way I guess that's kind of the way I see it. Like it doesn't have a lot to do with who signs my paychecks or anything like that. That it's more you know who who is coming in and out of my life, and what type of an influence do I have on them, or and them on me for that matter. Um, uh, but uh, I guess that's kind of the way. That, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way I see it. I mean, it's the, that idea of salt and light. That to the extent that you know Christ lives through me, I hope that other people see Him through me. Mm-hmm. And you've had some. You've had lots of vocations to kind of do that. You've been a teacher. You've been in the consulting world. Now, uh, as uh, John Irving likes to say, you're a graduate student uh, in terms of uh, uh, finishing up your PhD in finance. I mean, you've you've had a lot of different angles of organizing your life professionally. Yeah, very true. Somebody else, how you think of vocation and spiritual life, spiritual practice. Yeah, Jim. I want to talk not about myself, but about Gail. <laughs> I like talking about Gail, too. <laughs> yeah, that's how I get her. Um, because Gail uh, is a doctor, physician, and uh, did really well in medical school and could have been making megabucks, but decided, actually from the start, that she wanted to serve the poor. And she works in a clinic in Carborough and um, is speaking Spanish all day long. And so I want to see if Gail would have anything to say about her um, spiritual view of that. Go. (laughs) (laughs) Jim, I can tell you, this is going to really work out well for you or very poorly. Good intro, Jim. <laughs> Anybody else? Thoughts about vocation, spiritual practice? Uh, I know that, we, you know, we, we, when you raise a question like this, uh, you know, I know that 
we all come to um, the big slices of our lives with some ambiguity at times. Some, uh, it's not always a place where the good guy wins. Uh, uh, my exposure has been that sometimes the, the worst person in the community, in the office, in the environment gets the promotion. Sometimes, I know some of you, uh, Denise, I'm looking at you in terms of teaching. Uh, sometimes you feel like you're fighting City Hall. You feel like you're fighting uh, grand curriculum schemes that have nothing to do with the classroom that you're in. I know that it's an arena of frustration, but also in this community it's been an arena of passion for so many of you guys. Anybody else? Yes. Go, go, yeah, go for it. I think sometimes it's not only what you do, but also how you do it. Like other people were saying, I mean, that, and we're talking about ordinary time, but ordinary things like offering kind word or smiling at someone, you never know the impact that can have. Uh, so vocation is probably just as much about how you do what you're doing at a certain point in your life. Yeah, and, and you're raising a, t and tell me your name one more time. Anna, I just met Anna tonight. I met her mom uh, when I was speaking at their church in Raleigh this winter, and you're in Greensboro, and um, and that's a great perspective because you know one of the things that you know this whole liturgical calendar church thing that we talk about it creates tensions for us. One of those tensions is. Um, a very outcome-based view of job. What did you accomplish? Um, and Chelsea, you probably have to accomplish the same thing every day. And so the answer might be zero because there, there are people needing to be fed tomorrow. You know, it, but but there's this overlay that what did you get done, so to speak? And and it and it pushes aside sometimes the intentionality or the quality or the or the tone of our labor. So in some ways, marrying vocation in a sense of spiritual calling forces other questions, doesn't it? There was one more over here. Somebody said something in the back. Oh, yeah, Dave. Yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> vocation is one of those words that doesn't really previous time where it actually meant something. Because um, the world, you know, <coughs> we live in a time where the world has sort of lost any coherent sense of a, a unifying story, or we all share, you know, something that gives us all meaning, and vocation fits in nicely in a world you know, where everybody shares the sense that we're working towards something, we're, you know, we all, we're all sharing in whatever, um, culturally. So, and I, I'm certainly, I mean, I've put a lot of thought into thinking about my vocation. I feel like I'm certainly infected with that, that sort of mind that, uh, that I don't know, you know, I don't know what that means for myself because I feel like there's not any sort of greater meaning to, to give the term vocation in my own life meaning or something. So, it's, I think it's just very hard to, to think about a vocation. So you raise some generational, and you know, now that I'm 50, <laughs> I think I can offer some other generational uh, perspective on this. You know, I, I'm sitting there laughing when you said that, um, that probably in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, I think that my teachers were required to use the word progress every three or four minutes or they weren't going to be paid. So there, there was certainly this overlay of progress. Everything is going toward a, 
a wonderful destination, you know, and, and that's certainly not how we tend to look at the world today. Uh, in fact, it's probably one of the greatest questions we can ask is, where is this going? Um, if you live in Zimbabwe, uh, you probably ask that question every one second, but, but we are all raising and asking that question. Let me draw our attention to somebody that you might know. Um, kind of a, I'm just going to tell a bit of this story. How many of you guys have read the story of Jonah? A guy who had some vocational issues. And, and, and when's the last time you read the book of Jonah? Anybody have read this like in the last year? Jim? Wademan? This week? Probably for Wade. <laughs> so when I say Jonah, are you flashing back to like a church thing when you were like in the sixth grade, youth group, uh, principles from Jonah, you know, that, that sort of lesson type of thing. Uh, by the way, uh, Josh Busman has a whole layout on principles from Josh, Jonah. No, I'm kidding. The, uh, but, you know, it's, it's a... Jesse said flannel graph. Flannel Well, because the fish did so well. It was kind of a fun, you got to make the big mouth and, you know, that sort of thing. So this suggestion comes from Wade and Josh and a couple others to talk about Jonah tonight and see if we can intersect this with, with the idea of vocation. So here's the story. I'm going to give a little commentary, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to work on this a little bit. We'll see where we go. We might not get all the way through this. So Jonah has a job. Uh, and, and it's a pretty clear job. It's, it, there's not a lot of ambiguity in Jonah's world. Is that God says to him, um, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Uh, and Jonah's reaction to this request from God, apparently a fairly direct request from God, was to go in the opposite direction as far as possible. Now, the background on Nineveh, I think some of you know this, Nineveh would have been the northern, basically the northern neighbor of Israel, one of the most ferocious, warlike, threatening nations in the world. So you're in Jonah's position. And, and jokingly, I think this is a Wade point, but I think this is true. I don't get the sense that Jonah was maybe first choice of God. I think God may have like gone through the Rolodex of possible prophets. Because prophet sounds like a pretty good job to have. I mean, you know, if Elizabeth can say, I am a prophet, that's a good job. Because you can also say, thus saith the Lord, and we have to do it. Uh, or we have to kill you. But, you know, it, it's, so it's, it's a pretty good job. Um, and I don't get the sense that Jonah was first choice. But Jonah is sent to Nineveh, northern neighbor of Israel, warlike. Uh, the, the Assyrians had this philosophy of, of kind of multiculturalism. When they took over your country, they killed all of you. And therefore, they didn't have to deal with you a whole lot. So it, it was not a, a beloved neighbor, so to speak. But your prophet... You've now, I mean, for like one minute, God has said, you're a prophet. You're going to Nineveh to preach. What do you think God is up to here? Do a little geopolitic here. Northern neighbor, Israel, Israel's wicked. What do you think? Yeah, what's going to happen, Robert? What do you think God's up to? Yeah, you know, there's the sense that maybe the Ninevites are going to get a little religion, right? And what might they do with a little religion? They might purify the people of Israel in a purified sense of the word. So it's a scary thing. Uh, it's not something that, that Jonah wants to do. So he takes off 
I think you know this part of the story. He, he's out on the sea, um, and this huge, massive storm comes up. And it's one of those moments, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those, like a hurricane, tornado. I saw the, some tornado stuff from Joplin, Missouri. It was in a, uh, you know, a, um, a, con- a convenience store. And you had like 30 people <laughs> hugging each other, screaming, I love you, I love you, I love you, what's your name? I love you. Uh, you know, I mean, it, I mean, it's a terrifying moment. And you get the, the impression that this is what's happening here on, on this ship. The sailors, uh, people are, are gathering together. This incredible storm is happening. And, and in their worldview, a storm like this comes from God. So they, in their other worldview would have been that maybe somebody is being punished and we need to separate ourselves from the person being punished. So they draw lots. And I don't, don't ask me this. I have no idea. But every time they draw lots in the Bible, they get the right answer. I, I don't think we could probably pull that off. But they draw lots. They spin the bottle, whatever. Jonah, <laughs> what have you done? And, and, and Jonah basically answers saying, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, that's a pretty big answer, meaning the God that I worship is the God of everything. And everything is in chaos right now, and I am the reason. I have, I have, I have disobeyed this God. And, and so the men say, you know, this is, this is a horrible thing for us. I mean, we, who are we to get in the way of the maker of all heaven and earth? Though this blood could be on our hands. But Jonah basically says no, you need to toss me off the ship. And, and they're like, please, God, don't punish us for this. But the lot did choose the guy, and now we've got his own confession here. And so they throw him off the ship, and, and, uh, and he is there to drown. And, you know, the, the famous part of the story is he's rescued. He's, he's uh, uh, it, 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 fish the whole nine yards. He's saved in a dramatic way. Um, but now being saved um, from this imminent death, He's back with the job. He's got to go to Nineveh. And at this point, and, and I like the writing here because I think the way it's written, it's a begrudged trip to Nineveh. I mean, he understands that it's kind of like one of those Final Destination movies. He can't get away from what's going to happen. So he can run west, but he's going to end up in Nineveh. So he goes, and he has this really engaging sermon. You're a Ninevite. Here comes the guy. Here's the sermon. Pretty per- persuasive stuff. Forty more days. And Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, a foreigner. I mean, go out in Brightleaf tonight, and somebody's standing around saying, 40 more days, and America will be overthrown. What are you likely to do? Maybe call, I'd probably just walk past, ignore them, you know, anything. So, what do the Ninevites do? They have a revival like religious conversion that rivals nothing that has ever happened on the planet before. In fact, their king says, we are guilty of sin. I mean, you said 40 more days and God is mad. We're guilty of sin. In fact, we're so guilty of sin that everybody here has to start fasting. No one eat. Everybody put on sackcloth. And guess what? The animals are guilty too. So grab the dogs, the cats, the cows, everything. Put them in sackcloth too. I mean, literally, the whole nation repents. And then there's this little tagline. This is what God wanted. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So one-line sermon, not a lot of passion, massive repentance, 
to the point that God relents. God's plan changes, no punishment coming. Now Jonah, and think about all the vocational angst that we've talked about here, has done his job. And he kind of walks out of the city. In fact, it's possible that he doesn't even know that repentance is happening, that his words have been heard. But he walks out of the city, he gets out kind of overlooking this, and he goes, dang it, God, I mean... You're not punishing them, and I knew this would happen because you are compassionate and, and gracious. And you get the sense it's like a really good God would know what the Ninevites are about, and there would be smoting going on here in such a fun way that I would be up on my hill watching smoting occur. Uh, but here there's no smoting. You're relenting. You're gracious. Learn the job, God. Now, in a weird moment, a gourd... Does anybody know what a gourd is? I mean, a, a gourd book. Has anybody been anywhere? Are they big? It's a vine. But, but this one's big enough to, to, like, make shade. So this gourd grows up over Jonah. Now, he's thinking of geopolitics, but he's also thinking, it's really hot out here and I don't like this. And there's shade over him. And he's loving the fact that he's in the shade because there's this magical gourd over his head. And there's a little bit of backdrop to this uh, theologically that if you were to read the Old Testament, one of the things you would see is that there's a lot of parallels between trees and the judgment of God. No big surprise, Jesus is hung on a cross uh, made of wood. Uh, David's son Absalom hangs himself in a, a tree. It, for, for a good kind of Bible reading Hebrew, you might say, you know what? Maybe, maybe God is really, really taking it to the Ninevites. God said, I'm not going to punish you. Everybody gather together <laughs> and worship me. And then this big holy anvil drops down on top. I mean, you know, so it, it's possible that, that God is really going to punish them because here's this symbol over his head of divine punishment. But then comes the worm. And the worm comes and eats the vine. The vine is gone. The shade is gone. And, and this symbol of punishment is now being played out that they were going to be punished, but now they've repented and they're free. And, and Jonah makes this, you know, wonderful temper tantrum with God. He just loses it. Like, what in the world are you doing? And we get this final soundbite. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the gourd? It is, he says. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Big threat. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this gourd, though you did not tend it or make it grow. Did you have any gourd-related activity here, Jonah? No. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. So we're left with a theological point that one is God is clearly free to make, and we have no idea what Jonah does. I mean, he could have jumped off a cliff, he could have had his own repentance, he could have been a prophet to another country, or he could have given up the prophet business entirely at this point. We don't know. We don't know what happens to him. Um, but an interesting story in terms of this whole question of how do we make sense of our lives? How do we make sense of, of our vocational lives? Here's someone who, a lot of odd lessons, struggled, maybe did the job poorly, but there was tremendous success. So let me throw a couple things at you. When it comes to vocation, we live in a world of choice, right? 
How many of you feel like you chose the job you're in or sort of chose it? So most of us. Few of us have been grabbed by jobs, but most of us chose that. Now think about when you're thinking about vocation from kind of a, a, a biblical sense of things, very few people chose their jobs, right? They're, they're, if you're born into a certain situation, that's the situation that you're in. Now here's another thing. How many times have you heard people um, overly, and, and Stephen, you were kind of doing the opposite of this, but how many people, how many times have you heard people overly dramatize their vocation with lots of religious language? Of like, God has clearly chosen me to do this. This is, uh, do you hear that from friends, from people? What do you think about that? I see a few shaking heads. I mean, I, I guess I'm a skeptic with that too. Sometimes I kind of go, I don't know. I don't know if God has chosen you to do these things. But sometimes one of the things we do is we put a lot of, of, of flowerly kind of religious language over what we do. Another thing people do with their jobs is they compartmentalize them. How many of you have people who would say, well, I have my religious life, I have my spiritual life, and I have my vocational life. And, and you might say, and you might be in a position of saying, you are doing your vocational life in a manner that's torturing others, the community, the world. And they might say, well, I believe in God. It just has nothing to do with my being a banker, a musician, uh, whatever, you, whatever you might be. So I, I know that we, we struggle with this idea of vocation and religion. Here's a point that comes from Jonah. Don't you get the idea that one of the things that, that we're being told in this story is that God is irrepressible? I mean, there's just nothing you can do to stop what God is doing. If God wants to preach to the Ninevites, then the Ninevites will be preached to. And even if everybody in that corner goes with a really bad attitude and, and they don't speak Nineveh very well, somehow the word gets out, right? And it's going to happen. So that, that the part of the lesson is that God's plans are irrepressible. And throughout the whole book, whether it means sailing away, whether it's trying to drown yourself in the water. And if, by the way, I don't think Jonah would have been that excited about being saved by the fish. I think that that was probably the worst outcome. In fact, I would say that Jonah, I was always taught that Jonah was a frightened person. I don't think he was frightened at all. He was willing to die for, he was more of a patriot. He's kind of a biblical version of Oliver North than somebody who is really, really frightened. Um, he's willing to die for his worldview. Um, but we get this idea that God is irrepressible. And the final lesson of the book is simply that. Who raised the gourd? Who gets to destroy the gourd? Who are you, Jonah, to say that you have a problem with this? And in fact, we're going to even have your shade needs related to a larger, larger picture of what I'm doing. So it's kind of a parting shot on this. Pick this up in a bit later uh, next week. What does, what does an irrepressible God say to you about your vocational life? If that's a reality, and, 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 and you might have a vantage point where it's not, uh, in the story it's offered as a de facto, what does that say about our vocational lives if, if God is irrepressible in a certain way? How, how does it help us live and do what we have to do, it, even if it's incredibly hard, amazingly wonderful, difficult, or even temporary right now? What does it say? Any thoughts on that? 
God's going to do what God's going to do with me and without me, and it doesn't so much matter what I do or any of us does. God's going to do it. But if God wants to use me or anyone else, uh, there may be some obstacles in the way, and, and it may and it may be an excruciating process, which it has been for some of us at times. It's still it's still going to happen. God's still going to use me how God wants to use me. Jesse, great point. You're picking me up. If we were bowling, then you just hit like the what's like the the split where they're like in the far corners. You just hit the split there because that's something that I, I really comes from this story that I that I didn't say very well. Is that does God need Jonah at all? I mean, does he? I mean, he's a pain in the neck to deal with. It's quite honestly. I mean, God doesn't need him. That's another significant part of this story that really strikes me as incredibly encouraging. God chooses to work with Jonah. And, and sometimes I read Jonah and I kind of go, you know, I could be up there with Jonah. I mean, because I could be down there with Jonah. I mean, it's not, Jonah is not big competition, so to speak. And, and in some ways, there's something incredibly encouraging about the, when you take an irrepressible God and the, the adamant desire to work with human beings. I mean, how many of you guys have done something where you've said, I can't believe I'm doing this because I'm incredibly sure I can't do this, but somehow I am doing this. Anybody have that feeling? I have that all the time. And so in some ways, we have that idea that God is demanding to work with, with us, the people of God. So what is Jonah's vocation? Yeah, Elizabeth. No, far away. One thing that I notice here is that Jonah is alone, and he doesn't, I mean, you don't see him interacting with anybody, talking about, like, whether he's going to go to Nineveh, or his decision to not go to Nineveh, or what happens afterwards, and um, i found that, like, having people with me has both helped clarify vocation and encouraging the vocation, and also made all those decisions really complicated, more complicated than if I've just been living my life by myself. And so, uh, I have a vivid memory of you, Elizabeth. It was a August at Denise's house, a birthday party, and it was the first, it was the night before the first day that you weren't going to be a school teacher. And you started crying in the, in the middle of that meeting. And it was a, I mean, I was, and, and, I mean, I knew how passionate, because I had known you since you were 19 years old, I knew incredibly how passionate you were about being a, a school teacher. You taught in our kids' school. You're still legend in that school. And, and, um, and there you were weeping, because this was something really different that you'd never done before, and it was uncharted territory uh, with, uh, I, with you in certain ways. And it was a real powerful testimony to the idea that you were basically saying to your friends, I'm not sure I could do this if there weren't other people involved, if there wasn't um, family in a certain way, if it wasn't the, those of you challenging me that it might be okay for this point in my life to not be doing this. And I think that's maybe, maybe one of the things that we, is one of the hidden messages of Jonah, is what might he have done if he'd asked somebody, well, if, if there were people around him? 
It's a great point. Jonah's job, his vocation, he understands it, but he doesn't know what to do with it. This is a quote from him. Several of you pointed this out to me this week. Let me read it. Uh, Jonah 1.9. It's one worth reading again. They're getting ready to throw him in the water. He's on the boat, storm. And he says, I am a Hebrew and I worship God, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So in some ways, what he does understand is that, especially in that era where, where gods were thought to be local, my God is bigger than your God, but my God doesn't leave Durham, that sort of thing, that, that this confession of the magnitude of God is dramatic. And in some ways, what Jonah understands is that his primary vocation is being a person of that God. And our primary vocation as a people is in some ways being the people of God, knowing that we can do a lot more together than alone, and we can figure it out a little bit better together rather than alone. Uh, we might float the Tarshish plan and find out that it's not a great idea together. But in some ways, everything gets worse from that point on because Jonah seems to never apply what he knows to the choices that he makes. And to some degree, the book ends very unsatisfactorily, throwing a temper tantrum because God is gracious. Now, I've thrown a lot of temper tantrums because I've perceived God not to be gracious. But I cannot think of a really intense, you know, God went into Zimbabwe and fixed the economy and people ate for three months. I can't imagine that being a temper tantrum, but in some way it's Jonah's temper tantrum. So let's leave it with that this week. The idea that this irrepressible God that we're invited to participate in, in a maddening world, one that we're Ninevites become followers of God, maybe for like 10 minutes. Maybe they just say a couple prayers before they kill the Israelites. Who knows? But in some way, in this maddening world, our job is to, is to name ourselves as people who are part of the things that God's doing. And you know, when you're, when you're coming at it from that angle, what does it mean to be the people of God? It in some way resolves these crazy questions. Well, it doesn't resolve them. It gives them a, us a perspective on these questions of, is my job valuable? Am I paid for my job? People have told me that my income relates to whether it's significant or not. No one even knows what I do. And when I try to explain to them what I do, um, I, I still can't explain to them what I do. Uh, those things are, are complications that we deal with. But somehow being part of the people of God is, is powerful in that. I also say this to some of you who I know probably work with people who might be bullies, who might be insidious in lots of ways, who might be just everything that you're not about, so to speak. In some ways, there's the freedom to identify ourselves in a larger sense than, than just that relationship. And I know a lot of you have come from situations, whether it was a, a broken marriage, a broken family, things like that, where you really had to redefine your identity. And perhaps that's one of the most beautiful parts of Jonah, is the opportunity to identify ourselves as part of the people of God, um, and, 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 and work that out and figure that out together. So again, today, as Wade leads us to confession and absolution, um, there's so many confessions in this. In fact, one of the confessions that I throw out as, as we jump into this is the reality that so many times I miss the thing that God's doing 
just like Jonah, because it doesn't fit into my paradigm of what God should be doing. And maybe that's one of the things that we do as a people is we, we help clarify what we think God's up to in and around there. And Jonah tells us God's up to something. Yeah, thanks. I was thinking uh, from our conversation this week about this text, um, about the larger story that we see in the New Testament where the disciples of Jesus are very similar to Jonah in certain ways. When Jesus would go into certain houses to eat with people, there are times where the disciples would say, I'm not going in there. Good Jews don't eat with those people. And uh, I think you can see this prejudice that was a huge part of the Jewish people as God's people. Wait, you're saving us, right? And uh, it's a great reminder to me that all of us have places where we don't see the larger picture of what God's doing. We, We have our own prejudices get in the way of what we're doing. We don't know how to be a part of God's plan because it just doesn't seem to fit in how we think he works. And, um... I was thinking about a, a song for confession, and uh, I wrote the lyrics to this song, uh, this song a while back when I was thinking about um, some of the Gen X conversation, which is a, I know it dates me and it's an old conversation, but it was um, uh, some some thoughts along along the lines of, of, of this idea that we're talking about that I'm not able to get to what I'm supposed to do, not able to be who I'm supposed to be because of some of the hangups in my life, and so. Um, that idea is in this in this song called Walking in Heartland of sort of self-discovery, trying to learn how to get past some of the roadblocks that keep us from being all that we're meant to be. So here this is your confession, and, and uh, certainly sing along if you'd like. Well, I hear the winds of wind move like a cranky old man Down in leaves that were brown by the fall my reason it walks the same way in my mind Downing thoughts that I can't feel at all Yeah, I've no passion here to keep warmth in my heart But I don't have time to lose Cause I've spent it all like a gambling fool Being bluffed by my fear not to move I'm walking in heartland Well, I was holding my own on Tuesday, you know On Wednesday I was feeling alright But on Thursday I felt all the cracks giving way My anger blew Friday night Yeah, but the anger gave way to a numbness in me Cause it's generally safer than fright Cause to look in the mirror and know that I'm scared Or hurt, you know that ain't right When I'm walking in Heartland Down the same streets Walking in Heartland for me And they labeled my friends and me with an X to mark society's problems today Say we don't do enough Don't believe in our work Have nothing of value to say 
solution tonight we're going to do a song called Poughkeepsie and um, it's an over the Rhine song I think that's talking about that place where you kind of realize that the grace of God has come into your life in such a way that you just have to ride on it you have to trust that grace um, and uh, if you don't know it it's uh, pretty sing-songy and again the chorus is uh, one we'll repeat a number of times so join in on this one Look out over the Hudson and I'd throw my body down on the river And I'd know no more sorrow I fly like a sparrow And I ride on the backs of the angels tonight Here's the chorus I'd ride on the backs of the angels tonight Sing to the sky with all my might And no more drowning in my sorrow No more drowning in my fright I just ride course again I ride and I ride on the backs of the angels tonight take to the sky with all my might no more drowning in my sorrow no more drowning in my fright well I just ride on the angels tonight 
sorrow and those who must borrow and those whose lot in life is sweet will I drunk on self-pity scorned all that's been given me I would drink from a bottle labeled sure defeat but I'll ride on the backs of the angels tonight I'll take to the sky with all my might no more drowning in my sorrow no more drowning in my fright I just ride on the backs of the angels Then the sky fell open and my eyes were open to a world of hope Falling at my feet And now I'm no more Or less than Anyone else has What I have is a gift A life I can't repeat So I go up Poughkeepsie Look out on the Hudson I cast my worries to the sky Now I still no sorrow But I can fly like the sparrow Cause I ride on the backs of the angels tonight Yes, I ride on the backs of the angels tonight No more drowning in my fright Well, I just ride on the backs of the angels tonight Yes, I'll ride on the backs of the angels tonight Take to the sky Part of my vocation these days um, is washing bottles in the sink. Um, I'm a new mom, and so a good part of my days uh, includes dishes and laundry and all those fun things, which, as Tim mentioned, can feel like you're spinning your wheels sometime because there will be dishes tomorrow, there will be laundry tomorrow. But one of my favorite things to do while I listen or while I do the dishes is to listen to the radio, to listen to music, and. Um, of course, on NPR today, they were doing um, 
you know, coverage of the 9-11 uh, 10-year memorial. And so, of course, I was, I was listening in and out, and um, I <laughs> stopped for a dance party. Um, I heard um, Robert Siegel talk about... Um, he was watching the family members walk into the memorial and, and to see it for the first time. And one of the things that he said what was amazing is that people were doing the same thing that they did when they walked into the Vietnam Memorial for the first time. They found the names of um, their family members and they immediately started to make rubbings. They started to, um, you know, commemorate their, the names so that they could have something to kind of take home, um, something physical. Um, and I was thinking... When we talk about vocation, a lot of times we think of it as this kind of linear thing, right? We think, well, I'll start here, and in 10 years I'll be here. Um, just like we think about events. Now it is 10 years from this time, where are we? And I think um, what's beautiful about ordinary time is that it brings us into um, the reality of a liturgical calendar in which our lives are not lived on a linear plane, um, but rather in a cyclical um, redemptive circle. Um, and so what I wanted to bring us back to tonight to kind of frame our Eucharist um, meal together is uh, the Book of Common Prayer, which we kind of talk about a lot here. Um, and if you don't have one, I would highly recommend getting one. It's a really great um, resource to have if you're kind of um, wanting to join into the larger uh, church calendar year. Um, just there's lots of great prayers, things to kind of join yourself with, um, uh, like I said, the larger church community. And so I'm going to read um, the rite for the burial of the dead um, part of it, and then um, its introduction to um, the communion table. Um, I'm sure that this was read um, many times 10 years ago, and I'm sure it was read every day. Um, and so I, I wanted to frame it not only in the reality of um, death as part of the cyclical calendar, but also um, of life anew. And we experience both of those as we take um, the communion elements. So here are these words. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though this body be destroyed, yet I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold as not a stranger. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For if we live, we live unto the Lord, and if we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Even so, saith the Spirit, for they rest from their labors. In the midst of life, we are in death. Of whom we may seek for succor, but of thee, O Lord, who for our, for our sins art justly displeased. Yet, O Lord God most holy, O Lord God most mighty, O holy and most merciful Savior, Deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayer, but spare us, Lord, most holy, O God most mighty. O holy and merciful Savior, thou most worthy judge eternal, suffer us not at our last hour through any pains of death to fall from thee.
at Emmaus Way, we, we um, celebrate a communion table that is open. Um, we pour wine and juice for one another and break bread and give it to serve one another, saying, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. So I invite you to the table now to share in the communion feast. In anger, in stormy times, may your hope run like a river that will never run dry. May your burdens grow light, may your worries subside. This is my prayer for you. May your soul grow deep, may your joy run wild, may your heart know the face of mercy has smiled. May faith come to let you believe like a child. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for you. May your peace be an anchor in the stormy times. May your hope run like a river that will never run dry. May your burdens grow light. May your worries subside. This is my prayer for you. May your soul grow deep, may your joy run wild. May your heart know the face of mercy has smiled. May faith come to let you believe like a child. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer.